All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're going to be picking up on chapter 13, a new section which really spans chapters 13, 14, and 15. This section has been titled by one of our professors, Dr. Steinman, as a wise son, colon, wise ways to live. So we return in a sense to the motif of a father bequeathing wisdom to his son. And then this is going to manifest itself concretely in different ways to live. I think we're going to be able to go fairly quick. There are some ambiguous proverbs here in this section, but many proverbs with uh, information in them that we've already covered to one extent or another. So let's have an invocation and prayer. I'll do just a little run-up from chapter 12, and we'll be right into the new material. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so if we just pick up at chapter 12, Proverbs 12, 23, we'll do a run-up on where we had closed in haste last week, and then into the new material. So at verse 23 of chapter 12, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. So again, we're going to have this theme recur in the Proverbs that a fool is known by his many words. And he just continues to proclaim because he thinks that just because he's thought it, it must be wonderful. And thus the fool proclaims himself, namely folly. And in contrast to this, then, a prudent man, a wise man, a Christian, conceals knowledge. Now, what does that mean? Well, he conceals it in a way that he is, and we've got the text today in James for, uh, I'll be preaching on it for our epistle, and that is this idea of being quick to listen, slow to speak, and of course, slow to anger, but that's what is behind this proverb, a prudent man conceals knowledge, be slow to speak. Don't lay all your cards out on one, uh, at once. Listen carefully to what the person in front of you is saying, and then choose your words carefully and wisely. That's the idea of concealing knowledge. You can think of Jesus. I know his application is a little different, but as a general admonition not to cast your pearls before swine. My Jesus would never call anyone a swine. Well, then your Jesus isn't the one in the Bible. He says you're going to encounter swine and you shouldn't cast your pearls before them because they're only going to be trampled. So this is a sentiment that is going to be expressed in many and various ways in the Proverbs. So we'll just pick it up as we go along. 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. We talked about this. I think its meaning in terms of just our earthly lives as God's children is plain. It's always good to be diligent. 
Maybe the only caveat here is you don't want to become a workaholic. There is such a thing as that. There is such a thing as fathers and mothers who sacrifice their families on the altar of their success in the professional world. And that's a foolish thing to do. So you want to be diligent, um, or excuse me, if you are diligent, the, well, let me just try this again. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. And we talked about that in, in terms of the spiritual element, too, that uh, diligence is rewarded by God in our spiritual lives, our spiritual conduct here and on earth. And then um, sloth, it's like that idea of uh, do not be stubborn like the mule. Remember this, where the psalmist is praying to God and then God responds, which happens Sometimes in the Psalms, as you're praying them, you realize that all of a sudden God is responding. He says, do not be like the mule who must be curbed by bit and bridle. So forced into doing what God wants him to do. So that's the idea here. The sloth will be put to forced labor. And we can think of that in the extreme, in the unbeliever, you know, the motif of slavery to Pharaoh in the Old Testament is the motif of slavery to Satan. Whoever sins is a slave to sin, Jesus says. So that's the idea of forced labor, slavery. Okay, anxiety, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And I had opportunity to talk just a little bit. I don't intend to do much more. Maybe someday I'll do a whole class on it on the problem that has taken place, I think particularly in the 20th century, where the church has utterly vacated the field of quote-unquote mental health. We've given that over to mental health professionals. Basically, a, a pastor in modern conception is just sort of like a forgiveness guy or a life coach guy. The evangelicals do the life coach guy. Uh, the Lutherans, which is better, do the forgiveness guy. But even then, that's really, really truncated if you understand anything about uh, the history of the pastoral office for 2,000 years and the pastorals, like Gregory the Great's pastoral. He was a, roughly a 6th century guy. His pastoral was exited in the church for about 1,000 years. It was the one Luther was trained under. And in this pastoral, it talks about all kinds of spiritual illnesses and spiritual cures. So you might have heard the language of zeelsorga or curer of souls. That's a Latin translation. This has a long, long tradition in the church. And only recently has it become a Lutheran thing to say, well, that sounds like a mental problem. You should go see a counselor. Just let me know if you want forgiveness. That's a brand new thing. So... Uh, obviously, there's a nuanced conversation to be had, and there's analogy, analogies to be made that, yeah, if you break your arm, you need to go to a doctor, okay? and there may be instances in which there's something going on in your mind such that you need to see a psychiatrist or maybe a behavioral therapist, something like that, but Generally speaking, we need to regain ground there that we've lost, where we've just vacated the field, and this has been a disaster. 
Because by and large in American society today, it's like, okay, I've got a headache. Do you drink some water? Not without four ibuprofen. <laughs> okay, so did you get some rest? You know, not before I took a, I don't know, Valium or something. That's how a lot of people are these days. And the same thing is true, like, I'm feeling a little depressed. Maybe do you want to analyze the causes of that, see if there's anything in your soul? No, I'm just going to go to the doctor and get an antidepressant. So, again, I don't intend to have the full nuanced conversation here today, but suffice it to say, we've got ground to recover, and if that makes you uncomfortable, that's all I'm trying to do. I understand there's still boundaries there, and there's still, even if they may be gray, there's still a place for this kind of thing, I believe. Um, but by and large, we need to, and as Christians, we should think for, first and foremost of, oh, I'm experiencing, let's say, anxiety. Should I immediately run to my doctor and get something prescribed? Probably not. Here, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. What are the spiritual dynamics of that anxiety? Well, it's going to be different person to person. It's going to be general patterns, But discovering what is causing that anxiety and that anxiousness that then weighs a person down um, is going to be key. And then the good word that makes him glad needs to be discovered and the good word that breaks that anxiety. What is it that's causing the anxiousness? So I know many Christians have experienced anxiety to one level or another, anxiety attacks in one way or another, panic attacks in one way or another. Um, We are, I think, foolish if we don't explore the spiritual aspects of those experiences. And much of it, I don't mean to be platitudinous, but much of it does indeed have to do with casting our burdens on the Lord and letting the Lord be anxious. Frequently at the root of anxiety, as with the root of many sins, is a God complex. I'm anxious because I think that something is in my control that isn't. Or I think something should be in my control that isn't. Or if it goes this way, I'm not going to be okay with it. Why not? (laughs) Those are questions that start to dig down at the roots of anxiety. Okay, just going to move on. 26, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. I think we talked about the idea of guiding one's neighbor as not dominating or domineering one's neighbor, but truly being a guide. That's an art, not a science. And there's even a place and time in which we do that with our children, you know? There's times in which you, you're not guiding at all. You're directing. <laughs> there's consequences if, the, if your direction isn't followed. Uh, that's domineering, okay? And I, that's a good thing. Parents should do that. But then there's also a time in which you guide. Well, what do you think is the right thing to do? Why do you think that? How do you think that'll play out? Those types of questions are guiding questions. So, and that is our path as, uh, as righteous ones, as saints of God, is to be guides unto our neighbor, to do so without being obnoxious. 
Of course, the way of the wicked leads astray. Whoever is slothful, so again, this idea of tying back into uh, prudence and foolish, diligent and slothful in 24 is again, whoever is in 27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. So there's material and spiritual benefits to not being slothful. Too lazy to make yourself dinner. Kind of analogous to too lazy to get yourself to church. And there's an irony there because if you got yourself to dinner, you uh, probably wouldn't be so lazy anymore. You'd feel better. (laughs) And the same thing is true for church. If you get yourself to church, you feel better. That's another topic. Maybe we'll get opportunity to talk about it. But that's the the medicinal nature of uh, food in general is completely overlooked. And, And I mean even in a spiritual sense. Uh, that when we don't eat together as a family, we tend to think of it as like, well, there's just social benefits or we're just distracted, but we're missing out on one of the key components. And this is especially for, for you women, perhaps you men who like to cook. But in providing the food, you're providing nourishment, but you're also providing something that helps the, the, all the people gather around in body and soul. A good meal can just take tremendous amounts of stress and pressure off. It reminds you in an innate way that God is the giver and God is the provider. Reminds you in a small way, but a completely significant way that there's goodness in the world, (laughs) that there's wholesomeness in the world, that there are people who love, that there's light, that there's satisfaction, all these things. So, you know, one of the most overlooked things are the things of the home. And the, you know, we overlook them because we think they're mundane or we think they're just socially based or, well, I don't know, staring at each other blankly at a table is going to be better than staring at your phone, so let's just do it. And as, as good as those things are, we're still kind of missing the core components of what God has given us in this first article reality, the reality of family. And now my charge will be more upon you, uh, husbands, but of course, fathers. But, of course, wives in a secondary sense, mothers in a secondary sense. And that is, if nobody's talking at the table, it's your responsibility. If the conversation at the table is ugly or turns ugly, it's your responsibility to change it. And it's fine to just say, I think there's enough negativity in the world, let's not have any more right now. And you might have to be forceful. There might be, a mo- there might be a flash bang of more negativity the second you dare to assert your headship. But assert a way and make it happen because that's what God's called you to do. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of what males don't want to do and where we're failing is not in self-sacrificing, not in giving more, but in saying no and drawing lines and boundaries. And we don't do that because there's an immediate slap in the face to doing that. And so that's exactly the calling. If it's the right thing to do and you're going to get a slap in the face for it, that's precisely your, here's your card, <laughs> right? Here's your, here's your sign that that's exactly the kind of thing you should do. So around the table can be an extremely healing place. Bedtime, especially if you've got little kids, an extremely healing place. Let 
whatever the troubles are out and address them with a word of God and let peace, emotional, mental, spiritual peace, the peace of Christ, reign. I mean, these are small things, but these are, I mean, I'll use the word, I think you know what I mean. These are practically magical things. These are practically sacramental things. These are things that Christians are called to do in the home that have tremendous impact upon all the people there. And as the household is strong, it strengthens other households. And as those are strong, a culture is strengthened. And that's where, you know, again, the most important work we have to do in God's eyes is domestic in the home. And I'm not taking away from you males who work outside the home and provide for the home. That's part and, part, part and parcel of it. I'm including that in. Okay, so just some thoughts there on um, the importance of uh, what takes place. So the diligent man will get precious wealth. And I think I've reflected on some of that wealth for you. True wealth, earthly wealth, but true wealth. In the path of, verse 28, in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Which, again, I'm not going to go into because this is an idea frequently expressed, but this is, I think, beautiful of Solomon to do at this point because he's just continuously weaving in this theme that don't lose the forest for the trees. There's all these different proverbs and all these different thoughts, but it all still boils down to this simplicity that there's a way of life and a way of death. Christ is life. Satan is death. And then, then there's this, I mean, obviously we are of the life and of the path of life. We are of Christ. So live as what you are and spread and do life. So lots of proverbs, lots of admonitions in the scriptures to be careful with what you speak and be careful with what you do because you want to be one who brings life to a situation. Okay, that takes us into 13, into this new section, even though it might be a little artificial to make a break here. Um, The break is predicated upon the phrase in verse 1, a wise son. So we then, 13, 14, 15, these chapters have a wise son, wise ways to live. So let me just hit the first one or two, and then we'll break for your thoughts, reflections. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So we have had this sentiment before, and the wise will hear instruction positive, but also rebuke negative, and will appreciate these things, especially if they're coming from a wise and loving father. But a scoffer won't have either, not instruction or rebuke. So you don't want to be a scoffer. The world's filled with scoffers. They're a dime a dozen. Wise sons are very rare. Okay, from the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good. And we've seen this in chapter 12, a reflection that what comes out of your mouth returns to you, and what comes out of your mouth obviously affects others around you. So they're, in a sense, they're eating what comes from your mouth. Their ears are eating. It's a spiritual eating that is done with the ear or done with faith, whereas a physical eating is 
done with the mouth. So you can think back to chapter 11, verse 30, where you've got this reflection, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures or wins souls is wise. So the idea that a righteous one, a saint, Christ is the true and objective tree of life. Insofar as we're conformed into his image, we're also trees of life. And we feed others with the word of life. So providing for others, but also then what comes out of our lips affects us. So that's really the sentiment here in 13.2. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good. And of course, you know, from a, you can think about this too. I mean, I'm not opposed to this reading that the fruit of his mouth actually, like what comes forth from his mouth, affects uh, good things, makes good things happen that he enjoys. That's fine. And then the second half, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. So you have goodness contrasted here with violence. And then you have this idea of treacherousness. Treacherousness begets violence. Whereas the fruit of a righteous man's mouth begets good. Okay, let me pause there. Let's see. I've talked a long time. We can go back to earlier ones too. If you had a thought there that I just ran roughshod over. So, doing okay? Everybody's all right? Okay, on we go. 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. (laughs) That's a good one. It's a very good one. So obviously this is um, similar to 12.23, a prudent man conceals knowledge. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Be careful what you say. And I think this extends to social media too, don't you think? That's the hard one. That's the hard one. Got to watch what you type. Watch what you type. I don't really have any good advice there. I don't tend to use social media very much, or except just kind of as an observer. Um, but yeah, you got to be really careful with what you type. Would you say this to this person in, you know, face-to-face? <laughs> Would you say this with God? Watching, standing there, judging between you and this other person. Those are good thoughts to have. But anyway, I think it's uh, obvious enough. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So this control of the mouth, understanding that the mouth is a tool. James is great on this, too, in the New Testament, talking about the great damage, how... Like a, like a little spark can set a whole forest ablaze, so can the tongue just create a firestorm of disaster. So you've got to be really careful. You've got to know what you have, what God has given you there, and be really careful with it. A good steward of your tongue. Easier said than done. I think James also says that whoever can control his tongue is a perfect man, so a fully mature man. So in that sense, there's really only one, Christ. I suppose that's true for all of these. They're ultimately fulfilled only in him. All right, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. So similar to the 
verse 27 of chapter 12, the slothful guy won't even roast his game. The soul of the sluggard craves, he desires, but gets nothing. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Yeah, straightforward enough, I think. Five, the righteous hates falsehood. Oh, a beautiful example of the righteous hating. So again, as Christians, we want to hate. (laughs) The key is we want to hate that which God hates. And we want to hate in the way that God hates. So that's the idea, to be conformed into the image of the Father. And as the Father hates, so we hate. Uh, Christ hates, we hate. So that's an important thing because in our American religion, especially in our Americanized Christianity, hate is universally bad. You're not allowed to hate. The chief virtue is to be nice. Don't, don't hate, do be nice. And anything that's different than that is immediately a sin. Well, with this frame, we've just condemned the Holy Spirit. We've just condemned the Son and the Father. We've just condemned huge, huge portions of the Scriptures because the Scriptures plainly talk about hate and speak of hating. The Scriptures are very sharp-tongued, very sarcastic, uh, not palatable to the niceness of our modern-day religion at all. I mean, St. Paul, you do realize that someplace says, I wish people would emasculate themselves, I wish people would castrate themselves. Uh, how would that go if that came from a pulpit? Not the ears of my little child. Holy Spirit doesn't have our, our little pretty sensibilities. And there's worse stuff in the Old Testament. Um, you may be familiar, I won't go into it because it's just too far afield, but you may be familiar with it from Ezekiel, the extremely crass way in which he speaks of Israel's unfaithfulness with the nations and the gods of the foreign nations. Um, Again, I won't go into the specifics, but let's just say he accuses them of bestiality. So we've got to get rid of this niceness is the mark of whether it's Christian or not. We've got to get rid of this idea of anything that's hateful is wrong. These are deeply ingrained into us as Americans, but they shouldn't be deeply ingrained to us as Christians. Jesus himself calls people a brood of vipers. You sons of snakes. You sons of disobedience. You sons of wrath. You sons of destruction. You sons of darkness. The devil is your father. (laughs) Not God. Not Abraham. So, We have to listen when our brothers and sisters in Christ are speaking this way and not immediately be like, well, that's not nice, so whatever they say must be wrong. That's a big problem. Listen to what they say and say, well, that's not nice, fine, so what? It's important then. (laughs) Now, what is the content of what they're saying, and is that the content of the scriptures? Okay, I'm seeing a couple of hands pop up. Yeah, please. So what we hate is important to distinguish. I wonder if it could also be said what we love. For example, if you love heroin, that's not a good thing. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, there's disordered love and disordered hate. So you can see in our, we've got both. We've got, we've got disordered love and disordered hate. I think at the governmental level, what we've got a lot of right now in terms of our nation, let's say, but I think California certainly is, every bit is guilty, is we've got a lot of rewarding of evildoers and punishing of those who do good. We've got disordered, from the state, we've got disordered hate and disordered love. We love the criminals and we hate the victims or those who would prevent the criminals from doing their criminality. So I think that's on full display, disordered love and disordered hate. Um, The whole love is love, I bash on that all the time because it's stupid, it's inane, but it's also completely wrong. Like, okay, I love your truck, I'm going to take it. Love is love. You know, the application of this is just, I mean, yeah, well. Evil ultimately is stupid. That's kind of the paradox. Evil, evil's got this beautiful, this strangely uh, paradox. I wouldn't say it's beautiful. It's just beautifully articulated in Scripture. Scripture nails down exactly what it is. And on the one hand, uh, evil is more keen and uh, more sharp than that which is good. That which is good is innocent and straightforward, and the evil is manipulative and uh, easily wraps around its finger that which is good or innocent. So you've got that quality to it. But as evil continues to play itself out, it gets more and more stupid until where even the good just simply overcomes it with a statement. So that's kind of the paradox of, of evil. Yeah, so anyway, just reflecting on your statement, learning how to hate, learning how to love, loving what God loves, hating what... You know, and love is always ordered. Love is never disordered. Say, oh, I love everyone equally. You better not. You love your wife and all other women equally? (laughs) Might be a problem. (laughs) So, oh, I love my children and all other children equally. Yeah, let's see what they think about that. So all love is rightly ordered. And God in in his, this is, I mean, this gets down to the essence of God is love. Don't think of that as like, God loves everybody. That's like the dumbest thing you could think. God's love is a jealous love. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. His love is jealous. And any love that isn't jealous isn't love. So, again, it's love for your wife. You're jealous for her. You don't love your wife and say, I want you to be happy. So, you know, fine with me if you want to date other men. That's <laughs> not love. Okay? So, love is jealous love. You're my wife. I want you for me in this way. And I want me for you in this way. Right? And the same with children. It's a jealous love. You don't, call, you don't go up and hug a stranger and say, Hey, Dad. You're my real dad. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm jealous for your love. Oh, I wish John's mom was my mom. <laughs> oh, dagger in the heart for the mother. Fine, you can have her. <laughs> Go sit in your room. Yeah, so love, love properly ordered is always jealous love and rightly ordered love, and it's categorical and frequently individual. God's love is like this too. You're my people. I bought you with the blood of Christ. I don't want you to give yourself over to false gods. I don't want to give yourself over to darkness and death. I don't want you to pollute that which I've purchased, that which I've made, and that which I've 
repurchased through nothing less than the blood of Christ. So God's love for us is always jealous. Well, that sounds kind of legalistic. Well, get over yourself. You know, God's love is precisely this ordered love, and he wants what's best for us. He wants what's best also for him. There's nothing wrong with that. The two are uh, symbiotic, in a sense. They're, they go together. You can't have one without the other. So it's this disordered, nebulous idea of like, oh, we're supposed to love all people equally or the same. That's like, you should be smelling sulfur. Okay, was there a... Yeah, please. Yeah, this goes without saying. I feel kind of ridiculous presenting it. Having been in the classroom for over 40 years, wow, have we, are we missing it in America? Think of what's going on in Texas right now. It's crazy. And teachers need allies, and the parents are the allies. It's, It's... Ridiculous! I don't. I don't know where to go. We can't. We can't let it ride anymore. Yeah. It's got to be addressed. Yeah. Well. Right. Right. And I mean, no secret. I think um, all of us, pretty much in this room, would be of the same mind that homeschooling or a Christian school right now is probably the wise thing, unless you have a local school that's trustworthy. But. I mean, that's hard to do. Even in conservative Orange County, at the school my kiddos were just at, um, they've now got a trans individual there flaunting themselves and running around and doing all this stuff. So, you know, that's, it's a really... I, I mean, this is here in Orange County, southern Orange County, conservative Orange County. So if it's here, it's probably everywhere. And you don't want that kind of modeling. I mean, it's mental illness... And it's manifesting itself in a visible way. And you don't want that kind of modeling for your children. They have to reckon with it. And there's no good way to reckon with it. As soon as they are reckoning with it, they're in some way, shape, or form minimizing and or justifying it. Whereas it should just be like, no, if you're suffering from that mental illness, you should not be put in charge of children. Yeah, right. Right. Okay, so anyway, we'll have to just uh, saddle up and ride on. Otherwise, we'll get too depressed. (laughs) So let's just uh, unceremoniously pick back up here. I think we were at, I don't know, I think, okay, four maybe. The, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. The soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Yeah, and again, I mean, inherent here is you've embraced the lie. You're following the falsehood, and that falsehood only leads to shame and disgrace. Frequently here in this life, by the way, I mean, all these things that are touted as like great and wonderful for you to do um, are in fact not. I mean, we were just talking about the trans stuff. Look at Look at the statistics of trans people who have transitioned and look at their rate of suicide relative to the general populace. It's way higher. So these things are true even in this life, shame and disgrace, to say nothing of the eternal shame and disgrace. Okay, six, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. 
but sin overthrows the wicked. This is, I, I, gosh, I think I could wax on this for like an hour. I'll spare you. But the idea here, so this is one of the foolish things that has um, really attacked American Christians because we've lost our doctrine of original sin. And you can see that in all the free will, free decision, I choose to follow Jesus. You can see all these manifestations. But one of the most devastating manifestations is Christians who, even if they believe in the sanctuary or in the Sunday school classroom in original sin, they don't vote like they believe it. So what do I mean by that? They vote like good and evil like are inert things, things without energy. Sometimes we'll say, well, there's a slippery slope. There's a logical connection between this idea and that idea and that idea. And that in and of itself is true, but woefully insufficient. Because what we've lost is the fact that evil is, has a consciousness and a force. We think about this as just like, well, good principle, bad principle. Well, if we give a little, then rationally evil will stop at some point. No, it won't, because it's evil. It's an energy that is in opposition to God. So it's not just a slippery slope, like, oh, look, oh. Um, no, it's an active marching force. The camel is always trying to get its nose into the tent so that it can stop there. Oh, the whole body can get in. And that's, that's where we have just, so we're so afraid, and our two kingdoms doctrine, misunderstood and misapplied, has really, really hampered us even as Lutherans, to properly understand this, we have to regain the idea that good and evil are contrary forces. And you're not going to make any compromise. There's no time in which evil goes, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied, I've got what I want. I mean, that is why we are marching along through unthinkable things. I, I don't know if you sp- I, I spent a little bit of time uh, looking around on... Uh, some social media. And what is being presented now is that pedophilia is okay. So people from eight years ago are now saying, I told you so. I told you this is where it was going. But we all had Christians eight years ago saying, oh, no, 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 no. It'll never get to that. We, they, just want, they just want gay marriage. That's all it is. Uh, no. But all we said weekly was, Ah, there's a slippery slope, and the logic here is going to apply down the road to logic, and, oh, well, it'll never come to that. Evil will stop. Evil's inert. It's, people will come to their senses. A complete misunderstanding of the nature of evil and the nature of original sin. When you give it an inch, it takes a mile. When you allow one argument, it will use that argument in every possible area to destroy. It will march until bestiality and uh, pedophilia are celebrated in the streets, and you will be equally as bigoted and hateful if you speak against them than if you speak against gay marriage or transvestitism or any of these other things. So, I mean, what a devastating wake-up call, and in a sense, culturally, probably too little too late, no matter what, but not as Christ's church. We have to realize what it is we're dealing with and realize that evil isn't this logical human thing. It is a superhuman evil, the principalities and powers that are animating the flesh and blood people around us. Our war, our wrestle, isn't against the flesh and blood 
per se, but against the puppet masters of darkness that are behind. And if we were aware of these things, we would have fought more. But frequently, and this is the tragedy, is that very often when it comes down to actual persecution and the rubber hits the road, you have a good number of Christians who are ratting out their fellow Christians. You have a good number of Christians, I should have used scare quotes in the previous one because they're not really Christians, but you have a good number of Christians applauding the excommunication, arrest, imprisonment, and demise of their fellow Christians who aren't enlightened. So these are things worth having your eyes open to if they're not already and your heart galvanized for what quite potentially lies ahead. Because it's not likely to go away. It's not likely to suddenly stop. It's going to have to be stopped with some amount of force, uh, spiritual or otherwise. So maybe that's enough on that. I've soapboxed uh, more than I intended. But righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. Uh, Righteousness isn't inert either. It's active. And it's guarding us. Because what? That righteousness is ultimately God. who's guiding us and protecting us and guarding us. Even if we die, he brings us safely home through that very death. So to walk in blamelessness and trusting ourselves, again, blamelessness isn't sinlessness, as you can see, but to walk in a way that is blameless with righteousness actively guarding us. And then look at the contrast. Sin overthrows the wicked. It's not inert. Sin is a power, an energy, Uh, St. Paul uses this in Romans frequently, law. It is a law. Think more like a law of gravity. Think more like, uh, what is the second law of thermodynamics? Entropy, isn't it? So a law is a principle. It's just simply a name for a force. Sin is a force. You can see this right away in Genesis. It isn't just like, Okay, God says to Cain, okay, well, you know, before you, you got, don't murder your brother or do murder your brother, you know, so whatever, use your free will. Uh, you know, these things are both inert choices. Certain consequences come with it. No, sin is crouching at the door. The imagery is like a lion, and it's going to devour you if you don't resist it and master it and rule over it. And that's what we're all up against. I mean, that's the oh, but that sounds pretty legal, pretty legalistic, Pastor Rody. Well, get over yourself. This is the parts of Scripture we have to learn in our modern context. And I think you're foolish to just say, well, oh, it's legalism, I don't need to listen to this. Just, just be the forgiveness guy, Pastor Rody. No, that's <laughs> not faithful to my calling. It's not good for your soul, and it's not good for the world in which we live. So, yeah, this idea is that sin is waiting to overthrow and righteousness is waiting to guard. We need to realize that good is a power and evil is a power. And we want to ally ourselves with the right power and not be given over to this humanitarian uh, delusion that it's somehow human and that it's somehow inert and that we can somehow negotiate it. Okay, did I see a hand? Nope, just my imagination. All right, so moving right along. Verse 7, one pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. We Okay, we had this. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. 
I mean, this is one that, especially because of the second clause, it's just meant to really uh, provoke exploration, which I certainly commend to you. I'm not going to really do that right now. We did some of this with... Yeah, yeah, we did some with this with chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. If you remember 9, better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Here, a very similar idea, albeit more open-ended. You can pretend to be rich but have nothing. You can pretend to be poor but have great wealth. Of course, probably at the center of this is the idea of Christ who was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich through him, that Christological reality and the true spiritual riches. Okay, verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. Yeah, here's a really ambiguous one. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. So I'm actually going to defer to the study note here for efficiency and then maybe out of the commentary quickly. But this one is ambiguous. So the study note reads, could mean, notice the could, could mean that the rich are often victims of blackmail or kidnapping because they are able to pay a ransom to their tormentors who, however, do not find it profitable to make threatening demands of the poor. Okay, and then likewise, ransoming, Hebrew kofer, commonly used for atoning for or covering sins, but here it refers to a bribe or a ransom paid to a kidnapper. All right, what about hearing no threat? The Hebrew words are identical with the close of verse 1, do not listen to rebuke. So this one's a tough one to figure out. I mean, I think it's, I think, like, if I had to just do my best to summarize it, it would be more money, more problems. I think that's it. I think that's, as the famous American philosopher P. Diddy once said, (laughs) more money, more problems. Okay. This verse points out that riches can have their disadvantages because the rich person may have to use his riches to defend himself. Yeah, nobody wants to sue you if you don't have anything. (laughs) Can't get blood from a turnip. However, being poor has its own disadvantages. The poor person cannot defend himself and so ignores even the most forceful threat. Since he does not have the means to mount a defense, he simply has to endure the difficulties he may encounter. Yeah, and that's kind of a reflection on just the bummer that the fallen world is and to entrust ourselves to God even when life is unfair, even when the wicked have every advantage over us and take that advantage to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and just realize the scales aren't balanced until he balances them at the end. Okay, nine... The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Nice to reflect on these themes of light, because they're in the uh, epistle reading again from James today, that God is the father of lights. So the light of the righteous rejoices. 
It's a light in the midst of darkness. It's a light given to us by Christ, the light of the world. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Say that they have light to one degree or another, but that light will be taken away, put out. Okay, 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Yeah, I don't know, and this is kind of like prescriptive in the sense of you want to be someone who takes advice and gain wisdom. We've had that sentiment already on display in several Proverbs But I think it's descriptive here. So when you see an insolent person, someone who is too proud to learn anything, then there's, with such a person, there's just nothing but strife. And usually you'll notice the strife first. (laughs) Why is this person so contentious? That's all they are. And then they'll not take advice or counsel from anyone. So you have you know, this insolent person who has nothing but strife, do you think that that's somebody you want to um, spend a lot of time talking to? No. Don't waste your time. But with those who take advice is wisdom. So, again, we want to cultivate this in ourselves, but have our eyes open to, you know, look. Uh, say to your neighbor, look, you know, it's, it's wisdom to take advice. Okay, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Yeah, we could study the lottery winners. Everyone wants to win the lottery, but there are people who generally, oh, this is a sad thing to say because there's a lot of pity involved, but As a very general rule, people who play the lottery and and invest significant amounts of money into it are precisely the people who shouldn't. There's a little bit of a dog chasing its tail there. And as soon as you gain it, the very behaviors that caused you to play it in the first place are still extant within the person. So with all that money, it just gets replayed on a larger scale. I had a professor at University of Colorado Boulder who said, if there's one piece of advice you should take away from me in this math class, and it was the one piece of advice I took away from him. I don't think I took anything else. <laughs> he, said, he said the lottery is a tax on people who don't understand math. <laughs> so... Let you be upset with him. Um, but, but yeah, this is... It. So, so if you don't understand math, you don't understand money, and you play the lottery to the point at which you have a better chance of winning it, even though that's completely minuscule and ridiculous, you, those same principles are going to cause you to receive the windfall and lose it almost instantly. And so those dynamics are at play. I mean, we can see that with inheritances too. Solomon points that out. Like, great, you're saving all this money so you can give it to your children. Have you just cursed them or blessed them? Here's your windfall. Here's your 10K or your 50K or 100K or your million or whatever it is. What are you going to do with it? Depends on how old they are. (laughs) Might be Ferrari time. Is that wise? Probably not. 
So, yeah. I think that this has multiple applications, multiple reflections. But the idea here, again, is... uh, Lost my place. Where was I? Can anybody point me out? Eleven? Thank you. Sorry. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So I think that that's then the gathering little by little, being content with what you have. Good months, bad months, good years, bad years. Entrust yourself to the Lord. And, you know, again, that idea of prudence, of saving a little today for tomorrow. Then once you... It, once it's increased, you view that the same way, and so you just keep humbly growing. I mean, this is true, and it's, it has its spiritual realities too. It's why pastors, um, the scriptures forbid new converts from becoming pastors, because even if it's a position that's gained hastily, it's not going to be used rightly. So, little by little, steady as she goes, this is what God... God loves the mundane. God loves the average. God loves the normal. God loves all the things we despise. I'm going to be big and flashy and fast-moving and successful, and God's like, yeah, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. Rather you just be average, mundane, simple. There's much more beauty and joy in that life. Okay, I saw a hand, and that'd be good. Well, I was wondering what um, if we read this as spiritual wealth gotten by vanity. Yeah, what would what would that look like? So, spiritual wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Yeah, so is that what you? King James version it said vanity, but yeah, hastily. How's the King James version again? Oh, the King James version is uh, wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished. Yeah, so I was, I was only likening that with the application of, like, let's say some position within the church or something. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about more. My example was the pastoral office given to a new convert, that it's too much of a blessing given too fast. And uh, the idea of, of a new convert, I don't know. When, we, when you're raised in the church, maybe you don't always go through this phase, but to some extent maybe you do. And that's that you have this sense of like maybe pride at being right or something like that. And when someone who has that sort of immature take on the faith, we all suffer from it, you know, to one degree or another. But when you have that kind of immature view of the faith, now this is my weapon to beat people over the head with, so I'm always right kind of thing or, you know, whatever. Um, that kind of whatever knowledge you have is quickly lost because you're going to misuse it in, in all these ways, right? Just to be right or to be an expert in something or whatever the case may be. Those would be my, I, there's obviously room for more reflection, but those are my impulses. Okay, I think that's it for today. Let's just stop and uh, we'll pick back up there next week. The Lord be with you.